city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Twenty fourteen, just a little bit after twelve thirty in the evening, the Mona County Sheriff's Department received a call for service on their emergency nine one one line of a fight involving several people in progress with baseball bats. As deputies were rushing to the scene, the call was updated, now reading shots fired, man down. It's a very serious set of circumstances for any law enforcement officers to respond to. The officer gets at the scene is a sheriff's sergeant and as he gets to the scene he's given a description of the suspect vehicle and that vehicle is leaving the scene. As he is rushing to the scene he spots the vehicle, turns around and effects a car stop. During the of that other units are rushing to the scene and the deputy is able to isolate three people inside that vehicle. Upon the arrival of another sheriff sergeant, a CHP officer from California Highway Patrol, and a local police officer from a rural police department, the subjects are separated. And what happens during the course of this encounter is what is important and drives this case. After everything was done and people were interviewed and reports were filed and sent to the district attorney's office, a review of the recorded dash cam, body cam video revealed some suspicious activity on the part of one of the deputy sergeants that led to an investigation of criminal excessive force. With me today on a thread of evidence is District Attorney Jordan Funk of the Modoc County District Attorney's Office. And I welcome you to a thread of evidence, Jordan. How are you doing today? Ron, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. You bring a whole different perspective to forensic investigations. And I thought we might have some time to unpack this case together and talk about how prosecutors work with forensic experts uh, to help them resolve cases. Excellent questions. I'm looking forward to it. Well, great. Let, let's move forward with this. What do you remember about this case, and, and, and how did we get involved together? What made this case really interesting is, is the political backdrop and the history of alleged abusive behavior by the deputy. Uh, the county had settled one lawsuit about a year or 18 months previously, and we're a small county, so there had been a history of citizen complaints to the sheriff, at least of one of which had been sustained with a finding by the sheriff of excessive force. Uh, but nothing was being done to address the underlying problem. We're a small county. It was common knowledge in the county that the deputy in question had abusive tendencies. He was a large man, uh, had tendencies toward aggressive behavior. And so when the case came across our desk, it looked like a garden variety 
investigation uh, on a 911 call into some criminal shenanigans by a group of ne'er-do-wells. But when we started to look at the evidence, we had this body cam footage that showed some, I think, two aspects of, of behavior that were disconcerting. One was extremely rude, aggressive, and offensive treatment of one of the in-custody suspects. He was physically injured, mildly intoxicated, possibly had a broken nose. And the treatment of him by the deputy was really aggressive and hostile, verbally hostile, accusatory. And instead of causing a de-escalation of the situation, it well, it did not cause a de-escalation. And then the other thing that, that jumped out at us was uh, the, the, the alleged perpetrator was ultimately handcuffed behind his back, was not interviewed. He was placed under arrest. I always like to have people interviewed before arrest if possible so that you be sure and get a statement from them. That's always nice. <laughs> yeah, that's hugely important. That's a basic technique that should be employed, as we both know. It's not commonly employed here, unfortunately. But what ended up happening was the the arrestee who was injured and who was emotional and who has been really verbally accosted by the arresting deputy, I believe he was a sergeant at the time, very large man, the arrestee's handcuffed behind his back, and he's just begging to tell his story. And as he's being marched off to a patrol vehicle to be, to be taken to the jail, uh, he's handcuffed behind his back. The deputy has his right hand on the handcuff chain, his left hand on the arrestee's shoulder. And the arrestee turns his head to the left and says, will you just listen to me? And he'd previously been importuning the deputy. Can I tell my side of the story? Well, the deputy just got angry and physically slammed the guy into a nearby patrol vehicle, just threw him into the vehicle. The guy goes to his knees. You can hear him slamming himself, being slammed into the vehicle. He leaves a trace of blood on the fender. You can hear him moaning. He lets out an expletive. Oh, my God. I think he may have let out a few other expletives. But And then the deputy, the arresting deputy, is screaming at him. Don't ever turn toward me again or turn uh, on me again or something like that. But from the, the dash cam, it's evident. The guy is completely secured. There's no risk of harm to the deputy. All he does is make an attempt to talk and gets gratuitously slammed to his knees, thrown into this patrol vehicle. So coupled with the prior history of settled lawsuits, sustained citizen complaints, we felt like we had to do something. Well, you know, it, it's just incredible because I guess we'll talk about my review of the case as we go on. But one of the things that I found was just the presence of, of both implicit and confirmation bias on the part of the officer, right? And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Modoc County and, you know, what is it like? Because, you know, we have an international audience here, and, and maybe a lot of people, even people that live in California, don't even know where Modoc County is. But that all kind of plays part and parcel into the totality of this case because you know you've got a small community where pretty much the cops know everybody you know that's in that community especially troublemakers and when you have that type of environment and believe me you know one of my last billets as a police officer is I actually worked in a really tiny town about you know less than 10,000 people and I found that a lot of times the cops were very biased against the people that they ran into time and time again and really when you're a police officer you got to get everybody the, the benefit of the doubt until you figure out really what's going on and when I looked at this case I didn't think that happened at all that is so vital in a small county and I'll tell you why 
you can send people to prison and do it in a humane, reasonable manner. And you, you get a reputation in a small county, whether you're a prosecutor or a peace officer, you develop a reputation quickly. You want to have a reputation of fairness and decency and humaneness. You can do your job. You can take people down when necessary. You can use every bit of force that you require to restrain, apprehend, and detain suspects. But if you marry it up with a reasonable approach and a humane approach, what you get is you get public trust. And what you get from that is you get defendants and arrestees who will give you intel. They will come to you when they're out of custody, when they're not uh, in the in the criminal justice system, because they trust and respect you. They see things going on in, in their criminal underworld. They will come to you and give you intel that's vital. But if they don't trust you, if they think you're an a-hole, if they uh, don't like you, you completely foreclose those opportunities for intel. And then you develop a reputation in the community that when you come to the to court and you testify in front of jurors, again, particularly in a small community, it's very common that jurors know about your reputation and that impairs your credibility. And so there just are a myriad of reasons why you need to be humane and decent and reasonable. I'm not saying to the point where you can't do your job. We want peace officers to be able to use and employ every single tactic necessary to protect themselves and the public. But in a small county, it's really been brought home to me the need to treat people fairly and reasonably. You know, I, I learned that so long ago when I worked in a, in a large city in San Jose, California. You know, we, at that time when I was working, we had about a million and a half people there. But I actually was fortunate enough to, to have an opportunity to work a footbeat. And that's where you really have the face-to-face -face, uh, relationships with, with the people on your beat, store owners, uh, you know, family members, kids, uh, good people, bad people, all sorts of different people. But you're absolutely right. I mean, people appreciate being firm but fair. And as long as you're firm but fair, they will tell you a lot of stuff that they wouldn't tell anybody else or some other cop that was disengaged and just driving down the street because there's no relationship. So, you know, talk a little bit about um, Modoc County. W what's it like? Uh, what's the population? Where is it located in California, Jordan? We are in the very northeast corner of the state. I think we're about the fourth or fifth largest county in the state geographically. Uh, it's a high desert environment. We've got mountains that are close to 9,000 feet tall, uh, but it's high desert. So, you know, we get some good snow in the winter, a little bit of rain in the summer. Uh, I think the base elevation for most of the valleys in the area is about 4,000 feet. The, the, the county seat is a little town called Alturas, about 3,500 people. It's a very poor county. It's a very conservative county, a very pro-law enforcement county. Uh, but it's a radically different environment than what I've been used to. I cut my teeth as a young prosecutor in the Bay Area in Contra Costa County, and that's a county of over a million people, very sophisticated uh, law enforcement efforts, a large district attorney's office, great cross-pollinization with other counties and agencies that really improves the quality of your, of your game and your work product. So well, like, if you're working in a if you're working in an environment where the county seat has only got thirty five hundred people, well, then heck, everybody knows everybody there. Everyone knows everyone, <laughs> and 
that's that's just why it's so vital that you develop for yourself, even as a peace officer, a reputation. I liked your words, firm but fair. Even criminals, for the most part, respect that. And it's amazing that people who have a history of, of criminal behavior, if they trust you, they'll actually come to you and give you intel about other criminal behavior that they don't like. Right. That, that's that's so true. And, you know, I think you mentioned it. I'll, I'll just use a, the police vernacular and I'll say, hey, look, you, you can have a good jacket or you can have a bad jacket. But whatever jacket it is, you've got it and you can't take it off very easily. OK, so if you've got a bad jacket, it's not like you can just change your stripes and shed your jacket. People are still going to know you and that's the way they're going to look at you. So true. So true. And and this is why uh, in this particular case that we prosecuted, there had been a history and, and it was common knowledge in the community that there were problems. The, the difficulty was our sheriff wasn't addressing it. And so we were hemorrhaging red ink. The county was being sued. Uh, 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 we were losing, you know, believe it or not, it's important that you have credibility even among the criminal element because for all the reasons I stated, uh, but they have families. Those family members serve on jurors. And so there's a reputation that you get and that the agency gets. And in our case, the sheriff wasn't doing anything about the, the settled lawsuits, the citizen complaints. And that's the only reason. That's the primary reason why we acted is someone had to do something. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting uh, where you have a law enforcement agency that really needs to be developing trust with the community. Uh, but because of management, and I recall in this class, in this case, management was very stern, and basically they were in denial that there was a problem. And, you know, you were trying to fix that problem, and it wasn't really being appreciated. And it created, for them, the sheriff's office, they created their own conflict of interest. And so, you know, that's what, as I recall, allowed the, the district attorney to take a little bit more assertive steps uh, in the investigation of this, the, the, this particular thing that ended up being a crime. Yeah, it was astounding. Uh, Ron, as you know, uh, most law enforcement leaders, sheriffs, chiefs of police, they're very risk averse. They, they want to make sure that they conduct business in such a manner that they don't bring lawsuits upon their agency. They want their agency to have a reputation with the public of reasonable and fair treatment. And in, in our case, even though there had been settled lawsuits, uh, the sheriff didn't care. He simply refused. He took the position in one of the lawsuits that the, the very fine lawyer the county had retained to defend the county and who recommended settlement didn't know what he was talking about. The lawsuit should not have been settled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he had no clue as to Manel liability. Uh, and so it, it's a circumstance that I have never encountered before because we have a cadre of wonderful peace officers in this county. But if you, if you have a problem in the leadership where the proper use of force is not understood, where risk avoidance is not understood, where risk mitigation is not understood, and where there is sort of a contempt for the well-being of the public and a, an attitude that, you know, because we have the badge, we, we can do whatever we want. That's a problem. That is a very severe problem for a community. Well, what happens is they remove themselves, meaning the agency and management, they remove themselves from being a very important resource to the district attorney's office. They kind of shoot themselves in the foot. 
not only do they do that, but they harm other peace officers because they reinforce this idea. You know, there's a minority of people out there that are simply hostile to law enforcement. Maybe it's, I mean, it's, I, there, there are, you, you've encountered this, Ron, you know, there are people that are hostile to the badge. I wrote They're a book ho- about it. <laughs> I, I know I've read your book. They're hostile to the rule of law. And so when you give them ammunition, we, 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 we it hurts the system terribly. And uh, it, it hurts the district attorney. It hurts the entire effort to prosecute because it has to be a team approach. We, we have to have agreement on the basic rules. We have to all agree we're going to enforce those rules. And it actually harms the, the, the deputies and other officers that work in your community because the, they get painted with a broad brush. And there's a tendency to think that, well, because certain behavior by one deputy is condoned by the sheriff, that ergo all deputies or city police officers are that way. Well, they're not that way. And so it's very unfair to them as well. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, of course, I'm involved in the investigation of officer-involved use of force incidents. I mean, every single day at work here, uh, we have tons of these cases from throughout the United States. And and as an expert, I appear for all sides, right? In your case, I was a prosecutorial witness. I mean, I've been a criminal defense witness. You know, I've been a civil witness on both sides, defense and plaintiff, uh, appointed by courts before. And what I find categorically is there is such a minute number of officers throughout the United States that that actually would would use force excessively or do something wrong or act in a criminal manner. You have to remember there's 900,000 peace officers in the United States and they make tens of millions of contacts every single year. And force is only applied because this is a use of force case. I'll just say force is only applied in one to two percent of those cases, Jordan. And so, you know, but the the mainstream media and some people like Black Lives Matter and the advocates uh, for people that want to behave wrongly and criminally, uh, they make it out like police corruption and and police are shooting and killing unarmed people every single day and beating people up every single day. And as you know, as a prosecutor, uh, even probably more than me, uh, that's just a false narrative. That just doesn't happen. Completely false narrative. And the other thing that's, that's difficult is the public doesn't understand the rules that apply. And the rules are fairly esoteric. The, The law is very clear. The benefit of the doubt goes to the officer. And the other thing the public, frankly, doesn't appreciate is the degree and the risk of harm that officers face. So those things are problems. And I, I think it's just another reason why why we've got to make sure that when we're doing things, we're doing them right. So we don't do anything to feed that narrative. Absolutely. It, I, I concur wholeheartedly. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world, to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli. 
forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. So when I saw the, 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 the chest camera video, uh, I don't purport to be an expert on criminal use of force. California has a statute. We have a set of jury instructions. But it was evident the suspect, the arrestee, was handcuffed behind his back. And all he wanted to do was talk. He wanted to give his side of the story. Merely turning his head toward the deputy and exclaiming, "Can will you listen to me? It self-evidently did not justify him being thrown into, slammed into a nearby vehicle and buckled to his knees. So the obvious question becomes, well, we've got this history of subtle lawsuits. We have a sheriff who doesn't seem to care. We have a history of citizen complaints, some of which have been sustained. What do we do? Now, I've been a prosecutor for almost 17 years. I've never filed on a peace officer. And what I did in this case, given the sort of political milieu in our county and the background is I I intuited, hey, we got a crime here. What, if anything, should we do about it? Yes, it's relatively minor, but we have a pretty bad history on this particular deputy. And I thought, I'm going to send this out to an expert. I'm going to get a second opinion before I do anything. And that's where you came in, Ron. Well, and I, and I certainly appreciate it. How, how did you hear about uh, Martinelli and Associates and me? I can't. I'm trying to remember. I asked someone. I may have asked someone in the U.S. Attorney's Office, but right. I asked. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> since I, I asked for them. <laughs> I asked. I, I'm not remembering as I sit here right now. I made some inquiries, and then I think I did an internet search. And you, you're pretty prominent on the internet. And one thing I liked about you utilizing you is you got a real strong law enforcement background. You, a lot of your effort is directed toward uh, defending peace officers against excessive force claims, both criminally and civilly. And I wanted someone who, if, if, if it could be said that they had a bias at all, it would be a pro-law enforcement bias. And I wanted that. I wanted that kind of credibility in evaluating the case. So that if we decided to go forward, I could rely upon that outside review by an independent expert with a history of supporting the badge to show the public in my very pro-law enforcement conservative community, we're doing what's right here. What what appeared to you when that case came to you? You know, I've worked with DA's offices, I mean, my, my whole career, actually a member of the California District Attorneys Association for over 30 years albeit I'm not an attorney, but I've submitted so many packets to the DA's office for filing. What happened in this case that all of a sudden caused you to be suspicious because the police reports had no indication of any of this type of activity occurring? Yeah, what was interesting is the use of force was not mentioned anywhere in the body of any report. Now, I'm not an expert on police practices, but generally uh, when you're writing a report, if you have to rely upon any use of force to detain or arrest a suspect, that gets mentioned in the investigative report. Sure so 
there's not a word of that in the report. And a lot of times when I'm reviewing cases, I don't look at the body cam because we don't have time. The body of the report establishes a crime. Uh, in this case, for some reason, I looked at the body cam and then it just jumped out at me. And it was really odd to me that there was no mention of the of the use of force, which was pretty significant. Uh, that's the first thing. Well, that that's uh, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, and you know what? I, what I find interesting about what you just said, Jordan, is that, you know, you've been a prosecutor at that point, at least in your career. And this was back in 2014. So you got a few more years under your belt. But you'd been a prosecutor for 17 years and, and you'd never prosecute. And you were in a big I mean, you were in a big city. OK, yes, Costa County. I expert for the county. I know the Bay Area. Well, I was uh, an officer and detective my entire career in, in the Bay Area. Uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, at least a million people in your county, if not more. And you'd never prosecute an officer. It just shows you how infrequent these things take place. They do. And, and I've talked to other deputies and they're just they are very uncommon occurrences. And uh, but again, what really jumped out at me here is why is this in the why is this in the report? And then with the prior history of the deputy, and then what's obvious on the camera. Uh, but it was really, really important that I have an outside expert look at it because I knew there was going to be a political firestorm if we did anything. And I wanted to be able to say, I've had an outside expert look at the case. So what, uh, what do experts bring to the table police practices and forensic experts like what we do here, what do they tend to bring to the table that you don't find in standard uh, police or DA investigators? Well, in a small county, you're hamstrung because you don't get the cross-pollinization and your standard of, uh, I'm not trying to be a critic of our, of our fine officers here, but it's just a reality. Your standard of investigation and of work product isn't nearly as high as it is in a larger jurisdiction because in these larger urban jurisdictions you get challenged a lot harder by really effective defense attorneys not so much in these rural environments and and so you you you're you know you have this disability right out of the gate very commonly on on you know how good is our investigation how thorough is our work but in our particular case I needed an expert because I knew that there were going to be some pretty serious political ramifications if we moved forward. And I'm not any kind of an expert in excessive use of force. I can I can read and understand a jury instruction, but I wanted to test myself. I wanted to make sure, Jordan, don't make the decision yourself. Because I knew where I was at. I, I knew looking at the video, I was appalled. But I wanted somebody else who did not have maybe the same interest in the case that I have to look at it more objectively and in a, in a more detached manner. And that's another reason why we sent it out. Well, you know what, what's interesting that you that you bring out is, I mean, we all have our different wheelhouses, right? For instance, I'm not an attorney, right? I, I deal with legal, legal issues on a state and federal level every single day, and I pretty much live in federal court. And, of course, the standards, uh, you know, of evidence are a little bit different between state and federal court and obviously between criminal and civil court. Uh, and 
and so I try to stay inside that wheelhouse. Uh, but for attorneys, you're exactly right. You know, I constantly come in contact with, with attorneys at all different levels, both both civil and criminal on both sides, that uh, they know a lot about the law, but codified police practices, you know, I mean, what does that mean, codified police practices? It, you know, essentially it means that, you know, what are the guidelines? What, what type of education do police officers receive? What are the guidelines for, you know, laws of arrest and search and seizure? And, of course, uh, force is a seizure under the, is, is the Fourth Amendment, as you well know. Well, what are those guidelines? And, and can officers do that? I'm sure you're looking at the video and saying, wow, I'm appalled at that. But wait a minute. Can officers do that? <laughs> you know, and so it, it's good to bring in, you know, a person that's a subject matter expert that can work with you and educate and train you and tell you answer your first question. Number one, is that appropriate or not appropriate? And number two, why? You know. Yeah, and and you know that you brought up a really good point there because so few peace officers are prosecuted because, frankly, in my opinion the use of excessive force is such a rarity. It's not an area that most prosecutors are conversant with. Police practices, that's very esoteric. Now, I've done lots of cases with blood spatter. I've done lots of cases with DNA. I've, I've seen lots of crime scene investigations where there's blood, there's bullet holes. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've done lots of work with, 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 with trajectory rods, all of the generic general criminal investigative stuff is pretty well known to most prosecutors. But when you get into something like use of force and police practices, because it's so uncommon, that's, that's very specialized. That's very esoteric. And here's the other thing. A lot of times it's hard to get an expert opinion into court in this area because the, 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 the appellate decisions in a lot of jurisdictions are, say, look, if it's not beyond the purview of a layperson, you don't get to bring it in. And and sometimes uh, the, the, the use of an expert opinion just isn't permitted. But because it's not the kind of thing that prosecutors routinely encounter, the, the concept of police practices, what's proper, it was totally foreign to me. And I think it is to most prosecutors. Well, you know, so uh, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go, go ahead. No, I was I was finished. Well, no, you know what What I was going to say is, you know, speaking from the other side, you know, as one of the guys that sits in the seat while guys like you, you know, question me about, uh, you know, what my education, training and experience is and why is it relevant uh, to render findings and opinions before the trier of fact who's the judge or the jury beyond what a layperson could understand, right? That's the big argument in Dauber that I've got to get over. Uh, then, uh, you know, it, it's just so important that we be able to allow a judge to let us explain why uh, the jury may not be able to figure this out on its own. And, and what I've seen, you know, I don't mean to be critical of judges, but what I've seen is, hey, judges put their their pants on one one leg at a time too and uh sometimes they don't understand the issues of police practices even though they sort of fake it and and pretend they do uh i mean i've seen judges come out with decisions and rulings that i mean just flew in the face against certain guidelines of use of force or the way we use the different d defensive and controlling instruments that we do so uh, you know i think it's i think it's really important uh for experts in police practices to be able to explain, at least get that opportunity to explain 
to judges why their specific expertise is really needed and and why certain things need to be explained. I agree. And again, because this area is so frequent, infrequently litigated, most judges have not been exposed to it. Most judges have been exposed to crime scene forensic evidence, sure. DNA evidence, all that stuff. But police practices, that's typically very foreign to most judges. Now, in our case, we didn't get to a jury trial, but we took the matter to a grand jury. And Ron, you didn't testify, but an expert from your from your stable did did a fantastic job. Um, you know, and, and I'll mention his name because he's been on the show before, and, and it's Bob Prevo, which is one of our very, very best experts in a variety of areas. And and that was so vital to have him in the courtroom when we were in front of the grand jury because, first of all, you get the credibility of a career peace officer. So there's automatically some skepticism of jurors when you're prosecuting someone who, who carries the badge, and particularly in a small county where there developed some real tension between the sheriff and I because he had essentially, in my opinion, been excusing this behavior and was trying to make it a political thing. He was trying to say that I was pursuing a political agenda. And in fact, he went out of his way to contaminate the grand jury before we even got them in panel. Yeah, that's he, so unfortunate. It's wrong. Uh, but so having Bob in there, having someone... I can't recall off the top of my head. I think Bob was more than a 30-year peace officer oh, retired. Know, Bob was actually, you know, I'll, I'll burn him a little bit here. But Bob was actually my very first uh, training officer when I was a rookie officer back in 1974 in the Bay Area. Bob went on uh, to be promoted through the ranks and ended up a lieutenant and had managed uh, both the homicide unit at one point and internal affairs and later uh, was a supervisor, you know, manager in a jail uh, in a big county in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we're just so lucky to have Bob on our staff. I know I wrote the forensic report and you and I spent hours uh, discussing uh, this case uh, from all the different angles, but because of a scheduling conflict, uh, we had to stick Bob in there. Yeah. And so that was huge to have him in front of a grand jury because of his background and his expertise. And grand jurors are sitting there saying, well, even I think jurors in a criminal case. Wow. This is a member of the fraternity. This is a guy who resides on the other side of the blue line. He is a he is a peace officer in his heart and soul. And he is telling me the force used here was excessive. And here is why that has enormous credibility. And then, of course, later on, because we didn't we didn't ultimately get a conviction, we dismissed our case before going to trial for extrinsic reasons. Yeah, but it's you still know, I want to say something that had nothing to do with whether or not this event occurred and it was a criminal event. OK, it had nothing to do uh, with the officer. There was just another problem with this case uh, that ended up, you know, hurting it. But every bit of work that uh, that the three of us did in regards to this case was absolutely valid. Right. And the grand jury returned an indictment. The indictment was valid. There was no lack of probable cause. But so people tried to point to the lack of a conviction as calling into question the legitimacy of what we did. Well, it didn't. The grand jury's indictment was still an indictment. Probable cause to believe a crime was committed is still probable cause. But to be able to point to the fact that uh, we had a retained expert, one of the top retained experts in the country, who was a, a peace officer, a career peace officer, 
and that he opined that the force used was excessive. That that helped tremendously in the in the political uh, arena as this thing uh, played itself out. That was huge. What it's like uh, for an expert in a district attorney to work together to explain and reconcile the circumstances, facts, and evidence of a case like that. Can, can we work on that together? Absolutely. Do you want me to start? Yeah, why don't you start, and I'll just kind of chip in from time to time. So I, I have used a lot of experts over the course of my career. I think I've tried about 160 jury trials. And what is huge is an expert. You can be an expert in your subject matter, but being an expert in testifying and in conveying information to a court is a whole different matter. Now, lots of experts can become experts in that arena as well, but it takes a lot of trial testimony to get there. And so that that was huge. In our case, Ron, it was clear to me that you had that, even though we didn't actually get you into the courtroom. In our interactions as we prepared the case, uh, it was it was obvious to me that you had phenomenal jury appeal. We talked about that. I actually looked at some of your testimony at a trial up in Montana. And uh, what I found particularly gratifying in our preparation was that you, you had a really, really good grasp of the courtroom and what goes on in the courtroom. And a lot of experts don't have that. They might be experts in blood spatter. They might be experts in DNA. But the drama that gets played out between the defense attorney and the prosecutor and the judge and rulings and what those rulings mean, particularly if there's a limiting instruction that's given on what the expert can testify about. Really, really important to have an expert who can understand that. You've got an expert on the stand. The judge makes a ruling, limits the testimony. You've got to have an expert that's able to abide by that ruling and deviate maybe from his prepared testimony just a little bit and circumscribe it just a little bit because the judge won't allow it into evidence. So the other thing is I learned so much about police practices and use of force and how peace officers are actually trained. And that's stuff that most prosecutors, lawyers, judges just don't know anything about. So, uh, you know, when you're going to put an expert on the stand in that area of law, you've got to become a little bit of an expert yourself. You've got to learn what it is he's going to be testifying about so that so that you can get it in front of the jury in an effective way. Well, you know, I think as an expert, you know, my own personal philosophy is that part of the job of expert is also to be a good trainer, a good teacher. And no matter what side of the, you know, the, the, the I guess the table I'm on, uh, I try to make sure that the attorney that I work with uh, ends up knowing the information better than the opposing side. Okay, and that's the good information and the not-so-good information, because as you know, every case is what it is. Yeah, and that's why it is, if I can just go back to this, that is why it is so vital we interview the defendant, because we don't want to go to court with the defense attorney knowing more about our case than we do. And you're absolutely right about the expert being an educator. The, the expert has to teach the jury. Frankly, that's your role. You are, you're like a classroom instructor with rules of evidence that, that is trying to convey complex information to a fact finder. And frankly, that's what the prosecutor is. He is a facilitator of the transfer of information. Now, you know, we've got these technical rules that govern how we have to ask, ask questions and 
and how we're able to get that information in front of the jury. But the, the, the prosecutor and the expert have to be they have to be on the same sheet of music. They have to know what the rules are. They have to know what the subject matter is. And then they both have to understand we're trying to educate the jury. And uh, I, I, I'm disappointed, Ron, that we were not able to get in front of a jury in our case because I think I think you would have blown the jury away. But well, I, didn't have, I didn't have a conflict uh, that time, and I was uh, I was really looking forward to working with you and uh, presenting our side of the case and uh, taking a look at their arguments and destroying those arguments in front of the jury. Hey, uh, Jordan, let's take a break and come right back. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. A little bit about how the expert and the district attorney works together to attempt to reconcile the, the, the circumstances, facts, and forensic evidence against the statements of the defendant. Excellent. Let's talk about it. Uh, I think the first thing that jumped out at me in our case is I didn't just a bit of a digression. This whole concept of de-escalating and taking care of the physical and emotional needs of a detainee, I had no idea that there was an obligation on the part of law enforcement to do that. And, and you know, that impressed me that, you know, we had this duty. You have an injured defendant. Uh, you, you've got to take that into account in, in how you deal with him. In our because what happens is once a person's in custody, as you learned, there is a special relationship that that's developed uh, between the officer and the individual. And one of the reasons is, hell, hell, he's in custody, and he's got his hands handcuffed behind his back. If if something happens to him, you know, he becomes gate ataxic or loses balance and coordination, falls down, suffers a secondary impact injury or something. That's going to be on the officer. Uh, or if he gets sick or he has some sort of problem while he's in custody. He can't get immediate medical care. He has to be dependent upon his custodian. Yeah, and, and so that, that, that whole thing was educational for me. What made our case a little bit challenging is we have no mention in the investigative report of the, of the, of the force incident, and there's no the sheriff refused to cooperate with us in any kind of an investigation of the incident. Uh, we made numerous attempts to have him interviewed. He refused. In fact, my investigator tape recorded the interviews, and after two attempts to get the sheriff to talk with no result, the sheriff ended up complaining that my investigator had used excessive force and had been rude. Well, <laughs> well we, by the we, way, any type of rude language is not a use of force. <laughs> we, we had it all tape recorded. But we the, the 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 victim in our case had made an excessive force complaint to the sheriff's department and I remember that 
the 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 whole excessive force investigation was a whitewash. It was completely agenda driven to try and make the deputy look good and to try and make the alleged victim look as bad as possible. Now, you talk to any professional peace officer and they'll tell you when you do these internal affairs investigations in California, they're called A32.5 investigations. They have to be done professionally and with a view toward objectively determining the validity of the complaint. So that didn't happen in our case. We had no statements of the defendant, but we we ended up getting I'm trying to remember whether it was an offer of proof or something from the defense. We ended up getting some statements from the defendant to the effect that he had slept. The reason for the conduct was that he had slept. And it's true, he was near a roadway, the shoulder of a road, when he slammed the the alleged victim into the side of the car. But that got into a question of how do you interpret video evidence? And thankfully, Ron, you were an expert on that issue. And the evidence, the, the video evidence, just did not support the notion that the deputy had slept because after this guy gets thrown into the side of the vehicle, you have the deputy screaming at him, don't ever turn on me again. And there was no way to torture, I don't think, torture out of those facts, the slip claim, that there was no legitimacy to it. And in our case, you know, we had a competing expert from the defense and we got a defense proffer. So we had some information about how they were going to defend the case. And that might be where we got the, the evidence or the statement from the deputy that he had slipped. But uh, that's where the chess camera became so valuable for us. And uh, that's where the ability of the expert to analyze the footage in the chess cam and then bring to bear the expertise in terms of techniques, you know, how you what it means when a when it when it, uh, an arrestee is handcuffed behind his back well what's the significance of that what are his capabilities to apply force to, to the deputy well how important is the size differential the training differential what what is the relevance and significance of the of the arrestee being physically injured under the influence of alcohol or possibly marijuana what what is the significance of the the fact that the deputy has been trained in the use of force and and presumably the arrestee doesn't, hasn't been. What's the significance of their prior relationship? How does that support or not support the claims of the deputy that he reasonably feared that he needed to use additional force? Those are, uh, that's, there's a whole universe of factors that, you know, as a lawyer, as a prosecutor, you don't necessarily know those until you get an expert, particularly in this case, a police practices expert that can come in and educate you and tell you, look, these are the factors you have to look at. These are the circumstances. These are the facts of the case that hurt or help the case. Uh, so you might be a lawyer, you might be a prosecutor, but until you've gone through these cases and, and had the benefit of a police practices expert, you really don't know what you're looking at. Well, you know, the, it, what's so interesting for me as a person that sits on the other side as an expert versus a prosecutor, uh, and what I enjoyed about us working together on that case is that you're a really good trial expert. So uh, believe me, there's no moss growing under your shoes. Uh, you've been there, done it, got the T-shirt. Yeah, and, and well, thank you, Ron. That's kind of you to say that. I'll pay you later. Uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing, too, it, it's just so vital because you're you're trying to educate a jury. and. It's, I talked to other prosecutors before I did this case, 
they all told me, other prosecutors who had prosecuted peace officers. I, I talked to a deputy DA in the Los Angeles County DA's office. They have a special unit, public integrity unit. And they all told me, look, when you are prosecuting a peace officer, it is very difficult to get a conviction because you are asking 12 jurors who rely upon peace officers to protect them, to keep them safe, to step across that thin blue line and, and vote against their interests, so to speak. And so you have got to be, you've got to have not only compelling facts, but you, you've got to be able to present the facts in a way that reassures the jury that they're doing the right thing. And uh, that just requires a lot of preparation and coordination. And again, because this is not an area that particularly most prosecutors deal with, because it's not common to prosecute uh, a deputy or a holder of the badge, it, it really points out the need for preparation and coordination and education with the expert. No, you know, that's that's absolutely so true. And, it, you know, there's an uncomfortableness uh, of prosecutors having to prosecute uh, a peace officer because they they want to have good relationships with law enforcement. But at the same time, right is right and wrong is wrong. And one of the reasons that you have that awesome responsibility as a, as a prosecutor is because it's really a search for the truth and it's an ethical application of the law try to get a semblance of justice and at the same time you've got to balance that against something uh, that rears its ugly head from time to time and that's jury nullification right and I mean and just for our listeners jury nullification at least from my my perspective is that when they hear uh, and they see all the evidence uh, that is submitted that tends to be you know culpatory and the judge you know reads from the good book which is the book of jury instruction and tells them what their guidelines are with respect to the penal code sections that are the alleged violations uh and you've got a rock solid case the jury turns around and votes their conscience right they don't vote the forensic evidence they vote their conscience and they they nullify right? They nullify the, the application of justice. It's just so to speak. Oh, absolutely. It's huge. And of course, that that whole conversation occurs in jury instruction. I mean, the, but, the word OJ immediately comes to mind, right? <laughs> yes. And it's even more an acute problem when you're prosecuting a peace officer, because your jury pool generally is supportive of law enforcement. And so you've touched on a dynamic that was huge in our case. Uh, I had a lot of people come up to me uh, extremely supportive of what we were doing. People who'd been victimized. A lot of these people were poor people. They were people who uh, lacked standing or any kind of power in the community. We actually interviewed a whole bunch of citizens who had made complaints or had complaints. And they were grateful that someone was doing something about it. Now, of course, we had major opposition from other people in the community, but had we gotten in front of a jury, th that you know, that would have been a, a really important thing to get jurors committed to the proposition that if the evidence shows guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, we're prepared and willing to, to convict a peace officer. Now, we encountered that same issue in front of a grand jury when we took this matter to a grand jury. And that required a lot of voir dire. 
and the DA doesn't get to participate in the voir dire of the court in selecting the grand jurors. Once they're in panel, you sort of review those whole issues. Is there anyone here who doesn't think they can be fair and impartial and adjudicate the matter? I was very impressed that members of our community on the grand jury were capable of looking at the evidence, listening to Bob's expert testimony, watching the video, and then returning an indictment because it was the right thing to do. And I say, you know, you're absolutely right. And I was so happy to, when I can uh, get in front of the grand jury to, to give testimony after all that time that I had prepped to do so because uh, of my scheduling conflict, it was so uh, relieving to have such a quality expert like Bob Prevo come in and just, uh, you know, express our, our mutual value system, meaning uh, the prosecutor, you, mine, and his, of, you know, without truth there is no justice. And, and to just be able to get in front of the grand jury uh, and do some forensic explanations as to what was occurring. Hey, listen, I want to change track in our last couple of minutes, and I, I want to talk a little bit about you, Jordan, uh, because you've had a wonderful career, and you continue to have a wonderful career in the law. But I just want to, uh, you know, people might be just a little curious about how you started out, uh, what made you want to become a lawyer, and, and what made you want to become a prosecutor, and just maybe a, a quick synopsis for, for a couple of three minutes on, on how you evolved uh, as a prosecutor. I look back on my youth and I think it was kind of natural that I would gravitate toward the law because I like language. I like, I like speech. I like, uh, literature, uh, verbal persuasion. The verbal arts are appealing to me. I never intended to be a prosecutor coming out of law school. I wanted to go into civil practice and make the big bucks. But during the interview process, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. So during the interview process, I got interviewed by Contra Costa County, uh, uh, the chief deputy, John McTeague, a great guy. And I liked what he told me about what prosecutors do. And he promised me, he said to me, we'll make you a trial lawyer. And that was very appealing to me. Well, once you get into the law, and you find out that the transactional stuff, the kinds of things that civil attorneys frequently do, isn't very fun, isn't very exciting. And then, of course, you find out that when you're a prosecutor, you're in court all the time. And you're particularly when you're in front of a jury, that is exhilarating. That is fun. It's rewarding. And so I enjoyed that aspect of it. I, I'm glad I went the direction that I did. I love being in the courtroom. I love being in front of a jury. Uh, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you, you raised something that, that's very important now. You know, I've worked with, you know, uh, civil attorneys and, and prosecutors my whole in my whole forensic expert career. And what you said about prosecutors being in front of the jury all the time is really a true statement. Literally, almost every single day, you're making an argument, and you are refining your your language and your your argument skills and uh, your ability to take complex evidence and synthesize it down to the juror so that the average layperson can understand what you're saying and perhaps resonate with your argument as opposed to a civil attorney that doesn't do you know one-tenth of the the arguments in court 
that a prosecutor does. Most of the civil attorneys are involved in the mumbo jumbo of motions and cross motions and, you know, arguments and scheduling and, uh, you know, depositions and doing all these things. And they don't, you know, they very rarely, I wouldn't say rarely, but it's, it's nowhere near as frequent getting into the court because a lot of the civil cases, you know, they settle out. When you see a really good trial lawyer, and there certainly are many of them on the civil side, sure. it's just that they typically don't get the same experience that that prosecutors or criminal defense attorneys get. But when you see a really good trial lawyer and their communication skill set and their ability to, to take facts and weave an argument, uh, the employment of rhetoric, uh, uh, all the tools that are brought to bear, it's it's a joy to behold. And... I'm not saying I'm very good at it. I've seen some phenomenal lawyers that were exceptional at it, but it's a craft, it's an art, and it takes time and effort and study to develop, uh, but it's fun. Well, you know, it, it, it is what you are discussing right now really resonates with me. I love your phrase um, about the rhetoric, right? Uh, I forget. I for, now I should have written it down when you were saying it, but uh, just the the use of rhetoric, the use of of your intelligence, your collective knowledge, uh, and being able, uh, without looking down at any notes, to look that jury in the face and make a good argument uh, to answer. You know, for guys like me to to be on the stand and having people shoot arrows at you, and to make a a listen to those probative questions, which are pressing and intense and to be able to you know put your poker face on and and get in front of that jury and to do a cogent explanation of what you're talking about that would resonate reach reach that level of every juror right and then get that get your comments resonating with that juror is is so important and you know as as we draw to a close on this thing i just uh enjoy the symbiotic relationship uh, that I've had with you uh, as as a prosecutor and and also working with me and, and training me uh, as an expert to do an even better job in court, you know, in, in future cases. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to blow some smoke, but I'm going to tell you that I, I just think that the, the public up in Modoc County with you as their district attorney has been extremely well served. And, oh, uh, and I just want to thank you for your service and coming into a thread of evidence. Ron, you're, you're so kind. Thank you. I'm glad we met. Uh, I, I chose you as my expert because I knew you were a great communicator. And you talk about the, 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 the prosecutor having to be able to do certain things. So does the expert. He's got to be able to reach the jury, and you had that ability. So I thank you very much for your service. Now you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and district attorney Jordan Funk of the Modoc County District Attorney's Office on a thread of evidence on America Out